The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, November 11th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A note on partisanship as a disqualifier. Retiring Republican Representative Mac Thornberry went on This Week, This Week, and laid it all out. The problem is they started this basket not with the Nixon and Clinton precedents as far as making sure there was appropriate transparency and due process. They have made it one-sided from the beginning, very partisan. So I think whatever happens now, uh, there will be a taint to this one-sided partisan approach to impeachment that is different than has been used before. The partisan taint. Oh, beware that taint, the partisan taint. Now on Meet the Press, Republican Senator Rand Paul co-signed to the taint warning. And has nothing to do with legality or illegality or impeachment. It's purely a partisan way of trying to overturn the election. When speakers use partisan in this manner, they're clearly using it as a stand-in for biased or unfair. But in reality, it just means organized by party. There are partisan efforts and initiatives that were indeed unfair, like repealing Obamacare. Every vote to repeal Obamacare until the last couple of the 67 or so votes they took was entirely partisan. So the Republicans gained power. They made a vote in the House of Representatives. It went along entirely partisan lines, and they wanted to scrap Obamacare, but also entirely on partisan lines, the Democrats wanted to keep it. So if partisanship is bad, if partisanship is unfair, you'd have to conclude that since it was an entirely partisan effort to scrap Obamacare, then scrapping Obamacare was unfair. But also, since it was an entirely partisan effort to keep Obamacare, then keeping Obamacare was unfair. You see what's wrong? with blaming partisanship. And this brings us all back to a crazy and backwards sentiment as expressed by Senator Paul. And so it becomes partisan. That's why no Republicans voted for impeachment. No, 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 no. It is not the case that no Republicans voted for it because it's partisan. It is the case that it is partisan because no Republicans voted for it. And by the way, Justin Amash was a Republican until he decided this is the sort of thing I want to vote for, i.e. impeachment. And what did he have to do? He had to become an ex-Republican to do so. You know, it's fun to dwell on these murky matters of syntax, especially if you're a defender of the president, because all the other waters have dried up. And that will be the subject of today's spiel, the Republicans' ever-evolving arguments. In fact, You may say they have evolved into extinction. You know, the Irish elk developed antlers that were so long it could no longer lift its head and it went extinct. Now, that's not true, uh, archaeologically, zoologically speaking, but it's a really good metaphor and that's what meta is for. All right, so that's what the spiel's gonna be about, those dried up waters of defending the president. But first, a history of US slash Russia paranoia during the Cold War. It is the perfect companion to the U.S.-Russia paranoia of today. Author Brian Brown is here to talk about his new book, Someone is Out to Get Us, A Not-So-Brief History of Cold War Paranoia and Madness. (laughs) 
for people of a certain age, the Soviet Union, according to a latest poll, is a thing of nostalgia. Something like a quarter of millennials wouldn't mind it back. Oh, how little they know. But then again, during the time when the United States and the Soviet Union were staring each other down with nuclear missiles arming them, how little we knew. Someone is out to get us a not-so-brief history of Cold War paranoia and madness brings its author, Brian T. Brown, before me. Thanks for coming in, Brian. Thank you for having me, Mike. So if I uh, talk to people under, what's what's the threshold age, something like 38, about what the Soviet Union meant, what the USSR meant, what, what daily waking up and being across from them meant, I, can, I find that I could never communicate the pervasive emotion of those moments. I could communicate the facts. They were a superpower. We were a superpower. There's the plausible threat of uh, nuclear weapons. But because we know how history actually played out, it's very hard to credit the feelings at the time. And the feelings at the time will go to both sides. But the feelings at the time in America were really, really, really worried, weren't they? They were. And so, this, but the Soviet Union became that great other. And the Soviet Union didn't, the, the Soviet Union itself didn't do very much for their own public relations. So it was... To me, it was this giant vacuum of fill, fill it with whatever. Uh, yes, incredibly evil, incredibly awful, worst place ever, anti-capitalist. They were the antimatter version of us mm-hmm. with nuclear weapons. So a great American icon was Superman. Then there is Bizarro Superman, where with the inverse sure. and the S backwards. Yes. And that's all they were. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But again, they they didn't they didn't help themselves. But for anybody who even got a short peek behind the Iron Curtain, as I did, you went, oh, we're afraid of these guys? I'm interested in the idea of paranoia and madness. So madness is always, by definition, a dysfunctional way of thinking. But paranoia can be, at times, justified by events. So what maybe that... Maybe you went in thinking that certain things were examples of paranoia, but it turned out to be justified. They were really trying out to get us on either side. When I think of paranoia, again, in the context of the book, the word that kind of helped me was paranoia is fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yes, sometimes fear is is legitimate. Uh, And I guess the, the focus of my book was what happens when the fear is not a healthy fear or the fear is is not based on reality, then what do you do and how do you act? So there was no reason for the United States to be a frightened country at the end of World War II, right? And again, the, the, the opposite superpower is utterly destroyed. Yeah. It's flattened. And at the same time, right, the, other than Pearl Harbor, the United States is untouched. And we're about to enter into this period of economic growth and consumption that no society has ever experienced. So we had no one to fear, but we became incredibly afraid. And so what do you start doing? And, and again, the greatest- right. You start building up your arsenal. You start making alliances with horrible actors on the world stage simply because of the enemy of the enemy theory. You start doing these immoral things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But the greatest tragedy, and, we, and we're still living with it, is we still have 5,000 nuclear warheads for some reason. But what did we spend on nuclear weapons? We spent trillions of dollars. And, and what happens when you're spending all that money? There, there, there is still a limited amount of tax revenue that, that any 
that the federal government's going to have in any given year. And we're spending, like during the Vietnam War, we were spending up to 50% of our federal budget on killing things. Yeah. You know, weapons. And or in the case stuff. of nuclear weapons, just the appearance or the reality. Well, well, and we that, well that's the other. Potential well, kills. The, the, other, yeah. Yeah, the other thing with nuclear weapons is you, you, they're sitting in a silo or, or yeah, a warehouse. Did we get our money's worth? It's hard to no. say. No. <laughs> yeah. No. They would always have uh, the statistics that say, actually, on a per-cause basis, nuclear weapons are a better value than whatever missiles. But it's not true because we never use them. And and there were other costs that they didn't anticipate. That was was the argument in 1954, nuclear weapons, more bang for the buck. But then they have these command and control systems and there's all the security that you on top of it. So there were additional costs to maintaining a nuclear arsenal. What did the Soviet Union get wrong about the United States to their detriment? I think the sadness to me of of the ruling mindset, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote about this, is that when the Bolsheviks take over, what he, what he said, what may have surprised people the most was that the essential uh, character of their rule was secrecy. Yeah. So they were always afraid of what people might find out about them, but they couldn't trust anybody that level of insecurity that need to gain every advantage we're kind of living with it with Vladimir Putin I mm-hmm. mean the, there is something uh, one of the things you know in doing this book and and why I think people minimize some people I think minimize the, the help that Trump got from Russian intelligence is the Russians have been doing this for like four centuries mm-hmm. you know they've they've had secret police since Ivan the Terrible. Yeah. So when did we have an intel? You know, like the United States was born in 1776. When did we finally have a civilian intelligence agency? When did that happen? When? Ni- ni- 1947. 47. Right. And Truman didn't. Truman, after the war, we had the OSS, which was the wartime civilian spy agency. But after the war, Truman closed it. We didn't even have a spy agency until 1947. So we're kind of new at this, but there's a lot of institutional memory and they've been doing it a long time. So, and it's sad because we're now living with Vladimir Putin's revenge. And another reason I think that we, or people who discount the effect that the Russians had with the election is that they look at some of the known data, some of the ads that were that ran on Facebook, or some of the efforts to you know drag uh, someone, an actress playing Hillary out in the cage, and it seems so crazy and ham-handed. And how could you possibly be influenced by that? But you know, but as your book shows, this those were many of the hallmarks of their efforts. They weren't always so smooth. In retrospect, or when seen in the light of day, some of them do seem ridiculous. Some of them were ridiculous, but you know, some of them also work. And I'm reading today in the paper that this is it's sort of the same thing is so now the Russians may or may not be allowed into the 2020 Tokyo Olympics Mm -hmm. because they reengage state sponsored doping under Vladimir Putin. But now Fancy Bear is hacking into the databases of the World Anti-Doping Agency and the United States Anti-Doping Agency. And like they don't care. 
They know they're getting caught, right. and they don't care. And just to go back to like the play it straight, you know, they're pro- they're definitely helped by some of their performance enhancing drugs. But if they all get banned from the Olympics, they'll be winning no medals. If they just played it straight, some of their athletes would be doing well if they weren't taking performance enhancing drugs. They win some medals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing the Russians are very good at are things like gymnastics, mm-hmm. and, and and they have a wonderful they have a wonderful terrific. Sports tradition um, again. Their their hockey. Their 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 hockey. And I, I that was one of the things when I covered a World Cup the first time in 1986, and I saw the Russian team play. This sort of goes into going back to where you started. Is like what we thought of the Russians, you know. And so I'm 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 watching for the first time in my life. I'm watching the Russian soccer team play, and they play. Now I guess this is the Soviet soccer team because it's 1986. Right. They, they play a beautiful brand of soccer. Yeah. And they play a beautiful brand of hockey. I mean, it is artistic and creative. And so there is this part of the Russian soul. They're gymnasts, arguably, you know, the most difficult physical act that people do in in the Olympics. All of those things that are required to make your body move in those sorts of ways. They've figure skating. The Russians have dominated figure skating. So, like, it's some of the most complicated, delicate, impressive acts of athleticism, they've been the state of the art, literally state of the art and artful in the way they've done it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. Given how the post-Soviet Russian state, the tough time they've had, and you know, most of now, there was a time when they were a brick country, seen as that they were the R in the brick, seen as rising. But you know, I think that they they lied a lot about their economic statistics and so forth. So, given the fact that we're staring at an enemy or an adversary that is really, really weak, weaker than they were in the Soviet days, how is it that they've been able to get so much advantage and so much influence in American politics today in 2019? Money. Money, money, money. Citizens United. I think if a Democrat is elected, yeah. um, probably the most significant of all, I mean, uh, climate change is actually more important, but all, almost as important, and, and maybe it's more important to do this first, mm-hmm. is there's just too much money. So w- why is this? <laughs> how did we end up with, to me, the Democratic Party is, Right today is, it's the party that includes both uh, the progressives and then the liberals, and and to some extent it includes the old moderate Republicans. Yeah, <laughs> and and because this group, this group is like the old Bolsheviks. They they have been bought. Yeah, they they don't seem to have any any ethical standards whatsoever. And and M- Mitch McConnell has said this. He. In, in his own sort of strange way, he thinks more money in politics is a good thing. But if, if you, have a, you have a society in which all the gains are going to the whatever, uh, one-tenth of one percent, and that one-tenth of one percent can buy a party, yes. which they've done, then you can have some, some really static, narrow leadership. Someone is out to get us, and someone is out to give away some of the secrets of the Cold War. His name is Brian Brown. Someone is out to get us a not-so-brief history of Cold War paranoia and madness. Thank you so much for coming in, Brian. It's so much fun to talk to you, Mike. Thank you, Brian.
And now the spiel. The Republican defense of that highly imperfect phone call with the Ukrainians has gone from, it's not so true, to, okay, it is true, but it's not so unusual. I mean, remember Mick Mulvaney saying from the podium, oh, presidents do this all the time, and then he had to walk that back? Well, now it's changed again. So it went from, it's not so true, to it's not so unusual, to now, okay, it is pretty unusual, but the new defense is, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. We got some missiles. You got the ability to announce an investigation into the Bidens. Maybe we could work something out. Sure, sure, Trump said that. And yeah, we'll admit he probably shouldn't have. But according to Mac Thornberry, and I quote Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, no big whoop. Here's Representative Thornberry. I believe it was inappropriate. I do not believe it was impeachable. And, and process, I, I, you know, y'all always want to say substance, not process. There's a reason we let murderers and robbers and rapists go free when their due process rights have been violated. Good follow-up would have been, so you're saying the president is like an actual robber who committed a robbery or a rapist who rapes, but that rapist should go free because of due process questions. Okay, I could buy that. Instead, host Martha Raddatz honed in on another part of that peculiar sentence. I know you've said it's inappropriate, his remarks, but not impeachable. Why is what you've seen thus far and the transcript of that phone call, which we discussed, not a clear abuse of power or bribery as the Constitution lays out? Thornberry answered that, well, it's an open question as to whether it's good for the country to proceed with impeachment, and then added, I would suggest a couple of circumstances are relevant here. Number one is there's not really anything that the president said in that phone call that's different than he says in public all the time. So is there some sort of abuse of power that rises to that threshold that is different than the American people have been hearing for three years? I don't hear that. But, but secondly, we do have an election coming up. So doing it at this time uh, and, and make no mistake, the Democrats are rushing this through by Christmas so they don't interfere with their candidates being in Iowa, New Hampshire, and so forth next year. Let the Ameri- put everything they've got out there, fine. Let, let, let me ask American you quickly, sir. Let will decide this in less than a year. All right. There is another sterling defense of the figure that he just said was like a rapist or robber who gets off due to a due process consideration. To argue he does it all the time and loudly and in public. You know, I got to say, it's a really clever tactic for the Republicans to have elected a man without a conscience to skirt all penalties that take into account a sign of a guilty conscience. It's the perfect way to thwart the old, it's the cover up, not the crime. Elect a guy who never bothers covering anything up. You know, the whole shoot a person on Fifth Avenue theory, it has an explanatory power we could have never imagined. Over on Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace tried to nail down Will Hurd like Thornberry a retiring Republican representative. If there was a quid pro quo, U.S. aid for Ukraine was going to depend on their doing these investigations of political rivals of the president. Is that an impeachable offense? Um, I, I think if you're trying to get um, information on a political rival to use in a political campaign um, is not something a, a, a president or any official should be doing. I think everybody has, most Republicans have said um, that that would be a violation of, of the law. So that, in your view, if that were established to your satisfaction, if, I repeat, that would be yeah, an impeachable offense. 
Um, I believe that's something that would make it make it, you know, have to truly consider uh, whether impeachment is the right tool or not. Question. What would constitute to rep heard an impeachable offense? Please do so, sir. Do consider that. And while you consider that, I guess we will all have to contemplate Senator Rand Paul's bottom line. No, but what it says is, no, what I'm asking for is that they be treated equally. And I think the American public is going to say, if you didn't do anything to Hillary Clinton for hiring a foreign spy, why is it all of a sudden wrong for President Trump to try to have a country investigate? So if the prosecutor is on the way to try a mm, robber or rapist, but if he changes lanes without signaling, all of a sudden, it's okay to put a robber or rapist on trial? Better analogy. If the prosecutor about to put a robber or rapist on trial exceeds 55 miles an hour, granted it's a 65 miles an hour zone, but you know, let's say he's going 62 miles an hour, quote, I think the American public's going to say, let's not punish the rapist. I do. I so hate the two wrongs don't make a right argument. No, no. Chuck Todd, our interviewers, should not concede that there was a wrong, should not acknowledge that there's any applicability of that fiction to this reality. I mean, if he wanted to, Todd could have quoted Section 4, Article 2 of the Constitution as saying, now, the Constitution says the president shall be removed from office for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, I read the Constitution, sir. I didn't see a clause that reads, unless the candidate that the president beat in an election two and a half years prior also did something that the president said is bad. I read the Constitution three times. I didn't see that clause. You know, they say one argument about impeachment, one phrase that's used about impeachment, I guess impeachment and removal, but even just impeachment, is that it's a form of civic hygiene. And I always thought that that was theoretical and pretty high-handed, but my God, don't we need some form of house cleaning, a delousing, a setting off of one of those flea bombs, and then a thorough cleansing of all the infestations and rot that set in when a defenseless president asks his minions to do some defending? These arguments are so illogical, so insulting, so much in contravention to the facts. They're an insult to everyone's attention and also to the business of government. So I don't know if an impeachment will lead to a conviction. I kind of doubt it. But we do need to dip the enabling arguments in bleach and kill off the staff infection of argumentation that has attached itself to the original virus, which is to say, this presidency and its addled ways. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He finds Thanksgiving dinner to be a partisan affair, which breaks down along the lines of the eating the turkey camp and a turkey being eaten camp. Those are the party lines. Christina DeJosa also produces the gist, and she's unfamiliar with gradations of whoop besides the big one and no big one. She knows that medium whoops must be out there. She just hasn't found one. The gist. I also found out that the Irish elk isn't exclusively Irish, nor is it technically an elk. In fact, biologists now claim that if it were accurately named, the animal we refer to as the Irish elk would have been called either the Northern European large-horned deer, or, barring that, Tim. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>